As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thoughts and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson and I'm so excited today to be joined by the brilliant Trevin Wax, who is the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. We're going to be talking specifically about this new book on our Unapologetic podcast, but our focus today is, of course, C.S. Lewis. So before we hear from Trevin, just a quick reminder to check out our website where you can find lots of great articles and podcasts, including the Unapologetic podcast, as well as more C.S. Lewis content. So visit premierunbelievable.com. Trevin, let's let's hear from you. You're going to be in the UK for a conference about C.S. Lewis. Will you tell us just a bit about that conference? What are you doing? What are you going to be talking about? Where is it? How do we get tickets? Yes, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, it is called C.S. Lewis, A Visionary for Our Time. And it's, it's put together by the Thinking Faith Network, um, and it will be in Leeds. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm very excited about it because we're, we're going to be talking about a number of things that I think Lewis wrote about that is uh, things that are particular, particularly relevant even uh, decades after his death. We'll, we'll be looking at um, different cultural trends towards... Um, uh, expressive individualism in our society, you know, this idea of being yourself uh, above all else. Um, we'll also be looking at the idea that religion is is something personal and private, that it's just, a, um, you know, one spirituality to, to, uh, um, to pick out of a, a marketplace of multiple spiritualities. And, uh, but we'll be bringing, you know, Lewis's uh, fundamental teaching on the gospel to bear on, on both of those things. And so I'm very excited about it. It's on the, the 5th of November uh, from, uh, uh, I think, 10 o'clock in the morning till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, there will be people there in person, but also it's uh, available for registration online. And uh, I, I think it will be, it will be uh, uh, you know, hopefully a... a a good conference with some good discussion. Uh, it's being held at the Bridge Conference Center in Leeds, so uh, it, close to the bus stations and the railway there. And uh, there'll be lots of parking. So yeah, hopefully, <laughs> you know, we'll have a good turnout. Great. Well, I will include links to the conference um, in the in the podcast below and in on the video. But if if people want to, you know, they're listening now and they really want to grab a ticket. Wh- where's the best place for them to go to get a ticket? You know, I think the best best place to go would be to um, uh, the the Thinking Faith uh, Network website. They have a, an events page there, and it has uh, all the information that you need about how to how to come and join us. Okay, brilliant. And why are you such a fan of C.S. Lewis? I mean, that feels like a massive question, but if you could just potted history of why you love C.S. Lewis. 
Well, you know, it's a little bit hard to answer that question because it's, you know, it's kind of like asking, you know, how someone falls in love, I guess, you know, <laughs> and, and, and Lewis himself talks about that with Chesterton, who is, a uh, uh, he talks about how he, he's not quite sure how GK Chesterton made such a conquest of him, he says, and, and surprised by joy. And I feel a little bit of the same way with both Chesterton and with Lewis. I, I think for me personally, though, uh, there's something about the clarity and the crispness of his writing that is uh he he has this this combination of the intellect and imagination which is um you know it's it's more rare than it should be i wish it were more common but it's more rare than it should be and and i think one of the things that stands out in his writing one of the reasons i keep going back to him is the 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 sharp use of metaphors in in his because he combines intellectual rigor with imagination he is constantly explaining things in a way that shows you he's not just telling you he's showing you uh through through just a brilliant uses uh use of analogies and metaphors so that you so that you feel the weight of the truths he he he's he's wanting to to argue in a way to 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 bring you to a particular resolution but he's doing so um in a way that captures your imagination to where there's an ins inspirational element to that as well. So I just, I find him to be, uh, when we talk about his Christian apologetics work, his, his defense of the faith, uh, he's just masterful in this because he, he's, he's able to combine the intellect and the imagination in, in very compelling ways that make for wonderful reading even decades and decades after he, he first released the, 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 the books that most made him famous. Well, we're going to be hearing more about your journey with C.S. Lewis in the next podcast. But our focus in this episode is, is to look at, you know, as you mentioned earlier, specifically kind of those topics that you're going to be covering in the conference later this week. So one one is the gospel as public truth. And then one is sort of the question of Christian morality. And, and both of those, as, as you said, feel so relevant um, now. So let's have a look at that first theme, sort of C.S. Lewis and the gospel as public truth. I mean, why do you think, Trevin, that C.S. Lewis was so sure that Christianity was true because he didn't always think that, did he? No, you know I think uh, it, when we, if we take Lewis at his word, I think that there is um, there's a sense in which rationally he came to understand that the the gospel made sense, but but uh, it wasn't only rational; it was also affectional, and that it it it, it was a um, it, what what resonated most with him uh, from the imagination standpoint was also. You know, again, that combination of intellect and imagination. Uh, he he became. If we if we look back at his own conversion story, of course, he he learned from Hugo Dyson, from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, that um, all of these pagan stories of a god sacrificing himself to himself, or you know, a god dying and reviving. These were stories that moved Lewis in his heart and mind uh, over time. He, they were myths that resonated with him at the most profound of levels, but. Uh, eventually, I mean, if we if we consider his own his own writing, I mean, he writes a letter to his lifelong friend Arthur Greaves in 1931 that says um, that this story of Christ is the true myth. It's a it's a myth that works on us at the heart level, just like all the others. But the tremendous difference is that it really happened. It's the myth become fact, uh, the incarnation of of Christ. And so, um, I think Lewis came to believe this because he he believed the story was powerful. Um, uh, not primarily because of its goodness and beauty, although he often drew out the beautiful aspects uh, of the story, but above all else, it was true. This was the, the truth that all of the other myths 
were pointing to. And so, um, uh, I mean, just looking at his own conversion story, I think this is the way that he describes how he came to believe not only that there was a God, but that this God had revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this feels like such a massive question, but but what do you think are some of the key things from Lewis's writings um, on this subject that we can be applying to our context over 60 years later? Well, I think Lewis, if we take some of what Lewis wrote and what he saw even in his own time, a lot of the trends that he saw at the beginning, uh, you know, in the 1940s and 50s uh, have only sped up since then. <laughs> They've only become more and more prominent. So um, one of the things I think we can apply from his work is that um, we, we've got to, as Christians, we've got to proclaim something that cuts through the noise of all of the various spiritualities that are out there. Um, we, we've got to be clear that when we talk about the good news, we're not just, we're not just talking, we're not delivering a message of, of personal privatized spirituality. We're talking about public truth. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, you know, for Lewis, the, the incarnation, uh, God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us, he, he called, that's the central fact of Christianity. And he doesn't see that as just a religious view. Uh, one of the things he says in Miracles, he says, if, if the thing happened, referring to the incarnation, it was the central event in the history of the earth. And I think that's important for us to, to, to recognize. It's not just the history of Christianity, not just the impact of that on the church, not just, you know, giving us followers of Jesus a warm sense of hope in the heart. Mm -hmm. um, what, what Lewis was so, so adamant about is that if, if the incarnation is true, it is the most important event in world history. It's the, mm -hmm. the central fact of, of the universe. Um, and in 1945, he called it one grand miracle, the miracle. The, the Christian story is that, that story of one grand miracle. And without that, the, the essence of Christianity is eviscerated. So I, I, think, I think he would warn against the temptation to try to keep some of the moral implications of that moment without the event itself. It's kind of like, you know, trying to, um, uh, to sing a song without a melody, you know, or trying to climb a tree after you've, you've cut the branches, you know, uh, after all the branches have been cut out, or it, it would be like severing a flower from the root and then wondering why it's drying up. You know, mm -hmm. I think Lewis would point back to that event and say, this is key, not only for the church, but for the world. What do you think Lewis would say to people that we certainly encounter today, but I'm sure he would have also encountered who talk about my truth, you know, in inverted commas, as if it's very much just a, a personal preference? You know, I think um, today we, we do hear a lot of people using that, that terminology of speaking your truth or mm. living your truth. And it's almost as if, you know, Lewis was very clear with definitions. So I think he would want to, to really understand what people mean when they say that. And I think most people, when they say that, they they're using the word truth as if it were a synonym for perspective or experience, you know, sharing mm -hmm. my experience or sharing my, your perspective. And, um, and surely there's a place for, for sharing our perspectives and recounting our experiences. But I think Lewis would, would say if our tendency is to take that word truth and to put all around it adjectives like my and your, but never the, the truth, then, then we're really missing out on what, what, the very definition of truth would be to to be to begin with. Um, uh, we we can't think about truth in exclusively personal terms. Otherwise, we're going to miss the great adventure of of seeking and and finding something that that comes from outside the confines of our own experience. And so, I, you know, Lewis would 
I think he would push against this idea of putting religion or Christianity in particular in the category of self-discovery or self-expression. Um, you know, a lot of people today, when they talk about religion, it's just like everything else. You know, there's your truth and there's my truth. But Lewis, Lewis's work points to this, this greater adventure of, of exploring something beyond the depths of our own heart, beyond our own experiences. The, 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 the greater adventure comes when you find something beyond the realm of my perspective or your experience, when we encounter truths that we didn't invent, uh, truths that we're not adapting to suit ourselves, but truths that we discover. You know, it's something to which we adapt. I think that, and I think Dorothy Sayers and G.K. Chesterton and others, other luminaries of, 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 of that time are pointing us consistently back to to the truth, the foundational truths that stand the test of time is something that we, that's where we should plant the flag. And so why do you think objective truth really mattered so much to Lewis? Well, if Christianity is true, then it changes everything. Um, you know, one of the, the things he says in 1946, he, he says, um, he, he, there's a, a, a lecture that he gave called uh, Man or Rabbit. And and Lewis, he, he says, um, you know, Christianity claims to give an account of facts, you know, to, to tell you what the real universe is like. Um, its account of the universe may be true or it may not. And once the question is really before you, then your natural inquisitiveness make, must make you want to know the answer. And I love this line that he says. He says, if Christianity is untrue, then no honest man will want to believe it, however helpful it might be. If it is true... Every honest man will want to believe it, even if it gives him no help at all. Uh, I think his focus here is, uh, in, in saying that, he's saying, you know, if Christianity is false, well, then it's a gigantic fraud. It may help a lot of people, quote unquote help, but it's, mm. at, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's false. And I think Lewis wants to make sure that, that people in his day, and I think it's even more applicable for us today, is that Christianity is not true because it's helpful. It's helpful because it's true. Mm. If it is helpful, it's because of the truth of Christianity. And, and so uh, that's one of the reasons that he insists upon this, because uh, without, that, without sounding that note, we, we really lose the, the essence of what the, the gospel writers are declaring about Jesus himself. And both you and Lewis believe that we must present the gospel as public truth. Well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I mean, public truth as as opposed to um, uh, just a private personal spirituality. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy for us, and, and we've got to be careful about this even as Christians. And when we have dialogue with, you know, interreligious, di sometimes I hear interreligious dialogue going on. And I, you know, you, you might get the impression that Christianity is is really just a moral plan for being kind to your neighbor, you know, taking care of the planet or, um, you know, bettering your spiritual side mm. uh, or, you know, helping build the community. And, and, you know, Christianity does have something to say about all of those things. But if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, if the incarnation is true, it is an astounding turn of events. It's not, it, it's not spiritual advice. It's world-changing news. Um, and so that, that, that terminology of public truth, actually, I don't get from Lewis as much as from Leslie Newbigin. He was mm. a, a missionary theologian who spent many years in India and then came back to the United States. And, and he talks about, uh, Newbigin says, there, there can be no true evangelism except that which announces what only is, is, is not only good news, but true news. 
And and so he, Newbegin, like Lewis, is is wanting to make sure that we don't um, reduce the message of Christianity into just, well, let's make the world a better place. Um, at the end of the day, and, and Lewis warns about this in the um, uh, the Screw Tape letters. Actually, he says it's the temptation of of making of of of, of saying it's Christianity and, you know, mm. Christi- it's, it's Christianity as a means to some other end, you know, at making the world a better place through social action or social justice or through political involvement or whatever it might be. All of those things may be wonderful in and of themselves, but Lewis says it's very easy in the screw tape letters, he says, to coax a man around that corner mm. to where he uh, uh, suddenly Christianity is not the end in itself, but becomes a means, it becomes an instrument to some other to some other purpose. And so I think we, this is a good warning for us as believers to, to make sure that um, we remain distinctively Christian with the public truth of Christianity, that we're, we're calling people to confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, another topic that you're going to be discussing in the conference later this week is the idea of Lewis and the question of Christian morality. I mean, where would Lewis say that we get our morals from? Well, one of the things Lewis is most famous for is in his apologetic approach is by taking us back to um, what have, some have called the moral argument for for the Christian faith. Um, and so if we look back at um, mere Christianity, you know, in book one, he talks about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. He he believes that, you know, we, we encounter God as the divine lawgiver, uh, that there's the law of human nature. You can you say it's the law of nature, the moral law, the natural law in the abolition of man. It's the Tao, you know, that, uh, but it's this, it's the, he, he says it's the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. And, you know, you, you don't have to, you, you, you can, you can look at children on a playground, uh, you know, suddenly having a debate about what's fair or not to recognize <laughs> they didn't get that because that was instilled in them. Uh, from a textbook somewhere that there's an innate sense already that that the human heart has about right and wrong, and uh, and Lewis recognizes that that is God given, um, and then of course we you know in in the uh, the revelation of of Scripture we are then able to to understand why and how that's God given and how that can lead us to to faith uh, in Christ. And I mean, what does that mean for non-Christians? Because I suppose it's one thing to tell Christians that their sense of morality comes from the God that they believe in. But but how would you approach that with non-Christians? I mean, would you just say, this is where your sense of morality comes from? It, you know, is it, it, here's an apologetic argument for God. Like, wh- where does that leave us when we're talking to non-Christians about morality, do you think? Well, I think Lewis would, would want to say that at the end of the day, if there is no God, there, there is no morality. It's you know, Dostoevsky has the famous line that you know, without God, everything is permissible, um, and and I think Lewis would affirm that, uh, perhaps come out, come at that a little bit differently, but would would want to say, at the end of the day, all of us agree there is right and wrong, there is morality in the universe, and even those, you know, one of the the, the famous um, uh, things that Lewis does in his apologetics approach is by saying even those who would claim that they can't believe in a God because of human suffering in the world um, are are judging the the state of the world based on a sense of morality, based you know saying that the world is crooked because there's some sense of measure 
of what it would be like if it were perfect, if it were straight. And, and Lewis says, you know, where does that come from? So Lewis is, is, is taking us in, instinctively back to some of these moral instincts that we already have. And when he talks with non-Christians, and I think, we, I think it's still a, 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 it's one of many ways of having a conversation about the, the existence of God, but still a, a, a profound and powerful way of being able to lead someone to, to a place where they recognize this must come from somewhere. This sense that we have, this innate sense that is shared across religions and moralities, even if not all of the morals are the same, is it's striking. Uh, it's, it, it really is striking. And so it's one of the things that Lewis, that stood out to Lewis, and I think still one of the things today when we're making a, a, a case for Christianity, um, it, it's still relevant even today. And do you think Lewis would have faced similar issues, I suppose, to, to what we're facing today of morality revolving around individual preference and feeling? And, and how would he have responded to that? You, you know, in the talk that I'm, I'm giving at, in, in Leeds for this um, conference, this uh, Thinking Faith Network conference on C.S. Lewis, one of the um, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time with the very last thing that Lewis wrote that was published in, uh, in 1963. In fact, just a week before he died, he was making final edits to the proof before it was submitted to publication. It was something that went on the Saturday Evening Post, and it's a, a lengthy article called We Have No Right to Happiness. And um, uh, the, the, the article is, is extraordinarily prescient in my, in my view because he, he's recognizing, even then in 1963, uh, he takes an example of a, a, a tragic situation where two families are broken up by, by divorce. And, um, and he, he says, you know, he overhears this comment of, well, after all, they had a right to happiness. And what, what Lewis recognizes then is that um, the, the word happiness is being used differently even than, than the way you would hear it in the American Declaration of Independence, for example. Um, it, happiness in, the, in, in, in older times didn't mean you pursue happiness by any and every means. Uh, we wouldn't say you pursue happiness by murder, rape, robbery, treason, fraud. No, he would say that um, it, it, the, that pursuit of happiness must be done according to the law of nature. It, it's part of an ordered liberty, an ordered freedom. It's constrained in some sense. And so Lewis um, says, you know, what, what passes for happiness this, back then in 1963 is that it's really being already uh, applied to to what we mean by that is sexual happiness. And Lewis, even in Mere Christianity, warns against taking one impulse of your nature and then setting it up as the thing to follow at all costs. He says, um, not any impulse that we would be tempted to do that, it will make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. And so Lewis already then is recognizing that this is a temptation. And this is back, you know, almost 60 years ago now. And I think it's, it's extraordinarily... Uh, uh, the, the foresight in that article is, 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 is very powerful. What do you think we are to do practically as Christians in an increasingly unchristian, in inverted commas, world? And, and I guess what advice would Lewis give to us in this situation as well? Well, I think in conversation, um, it, 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 we, can, we can point out some of the, the flaws, some of the challenges, some of the reasons why a lot of people's pursuit of happiness does not end in happiness. Um, so Lewis was was very good at at showing the reasons why some of the roads to happiness that are on display in our world, at, in the end, are dead ends. They don't they don't lead to the destination. So I think that's one of in conversation. That's one of the things that we have to be able to do is to gently, but carefully 
um, probe at some of the, the, the remaining sense of unhappiness that's there. Um, for us as believers, though, I, it's one thing to tell of a better way. It's another thing to show it. And I believe that there's a sense in which we we can show the world that there is a, a place for self-denial, for dying to oneself, um, but in, in anticipation of a better future, of joy that's on the other side of that. So instead of suppressing self-denial for self-fulfillment, we... We pursue the, ro- the road of self-denial, as Jesus told us, to deny ourselves to pick up our crosses and follow him. But we do so because we know there is joy on the other side. That's the, the prelude to ultimate self-fulfillment, which comes from, from who God is. Uh, God wants our happiness. It's just that God knows that true happiness only comes through him. And so he understands our temptations. He knows our hearts better than we do. He, he even would, I think, sympathizes with some of our ignorant attempts to try to find joy apart from him. But he cannot affirm us in our misdirected ways because to do that would be to abandon us to our own desires where we would would wind up hurting ourselves rather than, than finding our happiness in, in him. He, he designed us to find happiness and peace in him because that is the only place where happiness and peace can be found. Trevin, I feel like we've sort of just scratched the surface of these massive topics. R- remind us again where we can go to to find out more about this conference, grab tickets to this conference that's coming up at the end of the week. Yes, it is put on by the Thinking Faith Network. And so if you look up the Thinking Faith Network, you will find it. Uh, it is a uh, um, it is in Leeds on Saturday, the 5th of November, uh, beginning at 10 o'clock at the Bridge Conference Center. So again, very convenient to get to. Uh, but if you can't join us, there is an online registration as well. And uh, would I'd love to to meet some listeners that hear this broadcast. Would love to to be able to meet up with you. There'll be plenty of time for uh, conversation in between the talks as well. So uh, looking forward to the good back and forth and the good Q and A that will happen. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. You can find out more about Trevin Wax through the links below. Don't forget to visit the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and more podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. We'd also love to invite you to be part of our next unbelievable live event, Culture War Questions, with apologist Sean McDowell on Tuesday the 15th of November. Sean's most recent book, A Rebel's Manifesto, is aimed at believers who want to act with grace and speak with truth into polarising issues such as LGBT, pornography, abortion, morality and more. Sean McDowell and Justin Briley will take audience questions on the hot-button issues dividing culture and help you learn how to give a reason for your hope with gentleness and respect. Please join us online from anywhere in the world on Tuesday the 15th of November at 8pm UK. That's 3pm Eastern and 12 noon Pacific. Register now at www.unbelievable.live. It's free to attend, but registration is essential. www.unbelievable.live. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be carrying on our conversation with Trevin Wax about the relevance of C.S. Lewis. (laughs) 